0: let's open our Bibles to the minor prophet of Malachi, the last book in your Old Testaments, four chapters long, The Burden of the Word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The last three books of your Old Testament, Zechariah, Haggai, and Malachi, were pretty much contemporaries coming at around the same time after the Jews had been recovered from Babylon and brought back to Jerusalem, Zechariah and Haggai were to prophesy to stir them up to rebuild the city and the temple there in Jerusalem. And they took their sweet time doing that, and that's why those prophets were raised up. And then the Lord sent Malachi a little while after that, contemporary with Nehemiah, in order to address the people again, for they were slipping into carnal living and neglecting his worship and it's such a shame to read it but if it weren't for the grace of God we would do the same and if he didn't preserve us and keep us we would do the same to think that a people had been judged for 70 years in a foreign nation and their city and temple and everything destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Chaldeans of the Babylonian Empire and then they would be recovered and turn away again from the Lord is hard to imagine Unless you're honest with your own self and how you have at times been very zealous for the Lord and you have lost that zeal in spite of all of his blessings and mercies and faithfulness towards you. This little epistle, this little prophecy of Malachi of four chapters has about 10 wonderful lessons for us and hopefully we can cover two of them today from the first chapter. And there's good things, and there are a variety of things that we're going to learn in four weeks by God's grace from this little book. Let me first of all run through this first chapter and show you a few of the things very quickly. The chapter and the book begins with the fact that God loved Jacob and the nation of Israel and hated Esau and the nation of Edom. And that great distinction should have moved them to have returned that love to the Lord. So it's an appeal to his love for them, and that love affected the Apostle Paul and others, because Paul said, The love of Christ constraineth us, and it should affect us in the treatment God has given. Though there were two twins in the womb of Rebekah, God chose one for his blessing. And though the other would make great efforts in order to rebuild after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed their nation, God said, they will rebuild, but I will tear down and destroy right. what they try to build in verse 4. In verse 5, we should look and see the differences that God makes from our borders. Right. Yes. Some of you have been saved out of unsaved families, and that is a border that God has made in your life. And you should look at that border and praise His holy name. Amen. And it should result in greater zeal from you for Him because of what He's done. Verse 7, is a wonderful little reminder that your actions say things about what you think of God. Your actions say things. In verse 7, it says, In that ye say, your actions speak louder than your words, and your actions declare things about how much you love God. Your level of obedience, your level of delight, your level of zeal all tells God and the rest of us how much you love the Lord. And we're going to see that. And so we want to guard our actions. In verse 8, Would you give such lukewarm or pitiful service to your governor? Would he accept the service? And would he accept you? No, he wouldn't. In verse 10, Some are so profane that they won't do anything unless they get paid for it. In Verse 11, There's a prophecy given of us that there's going to be Gentiles come that will serve the Lord much better than the Jews did. Verse 13, some people consider the Lord's worship a weariness and they snuff at it, but they do that by their actions. You know, we wouldn't dare tell the Lord that worshiping Him is just a weariness to us, but we'll imply it, we'll make it by body language, we'll do it in our gestures, and we'll do it in our actions. Verse 14 is a wonderful text that cursed is everyone that professes that he's a Christian, professes that he loves the Lord, professes that the Lord Jesus Christ died for him, and yet does not bring him the best that he has, because he's a great king, he's the Lord of hosts, and his name is dreadful among the heathen. I read to you the first five verses for the first lesson of this minor prophet. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, But we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. And they shall call them the border of wickedness, and the people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. And your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Amen. Amen. When a minor prophet or a major prophet in one of its chapters begins with the words, the burden of, that is God's judgment toward a particular people. Here, it's uh, the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. So it's against his own church that God's judgment is coming. If you flip through the book of Isaiah, for instance, you'll find in Isaiah 13, the burden of Babylon. If you go to Isaiah 15, the burden of Moab. If you go to Isaiah 17, the burden of Damascus. And in these short words at the beginning of a chapter or the beginning of a book, God is telling you in a short sentence what the book is about or what the chapter is about. And it's a blessing to know that so that as you read down through it, you can understand this is a prophecy against that particular group of people for the sins that they had committed. And so it is here in Malachi chapter 1. It's the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. So it's not... Uh, Egypt this time, and it's not Babylon, it's not Moab, it's the people of God themselves. It was written after the regathering of the Jews from Babylon to Jerusalem. It's the last word that we have recorded in writing that God expressed to his nation and his people. There's a 400-year period of silence here that if you want to know historically what was taking place for those 400 years from Malachi to Matthew then you can go to Daniel chapters 10 through 12 and Daniel chapter 8, and it will tell you what took place in those 400 years. The first and second book of Maccabees, though we strongly understand that they are not inspired, also refer to that period of time because that's when the Maccabees lived and when God used them to do exploits in defeating the Seleucid kingdom of the Greeks who had defiled his temple. But there's this 400-year period of silence. The last word of this book is curse. What a way to end the Old Testament with the word curse and to open up the New Testament with these precious words. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ. What a difference. The blessing of the New Testament versus the curse of the Old Testament. They couldn't keep the terms of the covenant of the Old Testament. So blessed be God who according to Hebrews chapter 8, quoting from Jeremiah chapter 33, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. And we are that Israel, the Israel of God, the covenant's been made and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, because we couldn't keep the terms in the church of the Old Testament. There's a lot of things in this small book for our learning, and we're going to see that as we progress, but we need to move quickly into the verses before us. These first five verses. When God brings His judgment to bear on the people, He first of all points out what He has done for them in order to heighten their guilt for not returning to Him the fruitfulness, the praise, the worship, and the service, obedience that they should have. This fits perfectly with Isaiah chapter 5 that I read to you earlier in its first seven verses where God describes His Old Testament church as a vineyard made with a choice vine and a very fruitful hill, that he provided everything that a vineyard needs to be very fruitful. But it wasn't. When he came looking for grapes, meaning good grapes, grapes that would make a great vintage of wine out of that wine press, he found wild grapes. And he said, what more could have been done for that vineyard? And here he is saying the same thing, and he is saying it in the terms of a comparison between two twin brothers and two nations that came from those twin brothers The nation of Israel, the nation of Edom. Edom equals Esau. Esau equals Edom. The Edomites are sometimes called Idumea of the Middle East in that time. They're no longer. They don't exist anymore, and they haven't existed because they were a people against whom the Lord hath indignation forever. So the appeal is made this way in verse 2. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet these Jews had the audacity to respond by saying, wherein have you loved us? Now it seems they've overlooked a few books of the Bible. Amen. Like about 35 of them. Showing God's love toward them. There's 39 in the Old Testament. The vast majority of the Old Testament shows God's love for the Jews, and yet they say, wherein hast thou loved us? See, they're a little irritated. And they're a little angry that they were 70 years captive in Babylon and they have had to come back and rebuild the temple. And they're upset about it. But remember, why were they in Babylon? Was it God's fault or their fault? fault. It was their fault. Were they in Babylon for their good or their evil? For their, They were there for their evil, but it was for their good. Because it was chastening. And God's chastening is always for our good. And He brought them back. He raised them up a savior when the case was hopeless. When the Babylonians ruled Babylon and Belshazzar was the king of Babylon, there was no escape for the Jews. They weren't going to go anywhere. That was the impregnable city of the Chaldeans that said, "In by God's words, I am a queen and I shall sit forever. And Yet the Lord raised up a man, Cyrus, The nephew of Darius the Mede and Cyrus took the city in one night. What a blessing. And then Cyrus, as soon as he took office, said, The Lord God of heaven hath charged me to build him a house in Jerusalem. Now all those of you that are his people, you are welcome to go back and I'll help you rebuild the house of God. What a blessing. Wherein hast thou loved us? The Lord is not angry with this church this morning. And I'm not. But the Lord's brought us to Malachi, and so we're going to start out with the first chapter rather than starting out with some other chapter. Right. So we start out with the first. The Lord is not angry with us, but the Lord can always get a little bit more out of us, can He? And shouldn't He? He's worthy of it. And so this morning, you know, we don't have a nation. Well, we do, don't we? Have a nation that's been blessed. You know, you want to compare America to Mexico? The difference is dramatic. Check the border out between Texas and Mexico. Check the border out between America and Canada. You say, well, I thought Canada is about our equal. Well, then go travel in it and check out its laws, but especially make your way around the province of Quebec. You know, where the French get involved, there's problems to follow. And if any of you are, have French ancestors, I'm sorry. It's something that you can make up for with a great deal of God's grace. That was said in, to humor you. Quebec is hilarious. When Catholicism is, a, is the state religion of either Mexico, the Philippines, or Quebec, when Roman Catholicism reigns, poverty is about to follow, ignorance follows, and so forth, right. because of the superstition that is required to be a Roman Catholic. Praise God for our nation. We are blessed abundantly and we can look at our borders and we can look at the rest of the world and the rest of the teeming masses of the world have for a long time. Now it's a little diminished, but they have wanted to be part of this nation. They have wanted to enter New York Harbor and be immigrants to America. And so all the nations of the earth came here. Everybody wants to be an American. And they still do. Because it is still a better place to live with a higher standard of living and more personal liberties than any other place on earth. But that's not the point. This is Israel under consideration. They're back in Jerusalem, and they're neglecting the worship of God. And God starts out, and he starts out with us. Haven't I sent my son to die for you? Haven't I regenerated you by my spirit? Haven't I elected you before the foundation of the world and predestinated you to the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself? Does, Does the book of Ephesians start off that way? with the phases of salvation, and we ought to be very thankful and ought to move us and constrain us like it did our brother Paul. It constrained him. It put him in a straitjacket that he had only one purpose for his life, and that was to burn himself out for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we should be that way. This should be the favored time of the week in your lives, and your children should grow up believing that by your treatment of it, your attitude toward it, your words about it, and the fervency and zealousness that you show toward his worship on the Lord's day. Right. And you can affect your children greatly, more than by your words, more than by having devotions. It's by giving yourself a living sacrifice to the Lord Jesus Christ in his worship. There right. should never be the dragging of feet. There shouldn't be the bad body language. There shouldn't be the huffing and the puffing. It should be joy to be here. Amen. And this whole chapter is going to speak to that fact that this should be the joyous place that we want to come to because this is where we return to God what he asks of us for whom he sent his son to die. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, Wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Saith the Lord, Yet I loved Jacob, and I ate at Esau. Look at the difference I made in your great-grandmother's womb when there were twins there. I chose your father, And I rejected his older brother. Esau was born first, but I left him. I hated him. And those people that come from him, I have toward them an indignation forever. I have loved you. I hated Esau. Look at what I did to his nation. And so verse 3, I laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. It wasn't chastening. It was judgment. Do you know that when God chastens you and judges you in chastening love, it is a blessing? In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, there were many in the church at Corinth that were weak, sick, and slept. Meaning, there were many that were already dead in the church at Corinth. But that was God's chastening on them for their sins that they would not be and should not be condemned with the world. That was a difference that God made in their midst that was for their profit if they could understand it correctly. They were chastened for their sins. We want to be chastened for our sins, because before we were afflicted, I went astray. But in faithfulness, God afflicts us to bring us back to His way. And so Babylon was an affliction for them. It was a chastening. Now they were back, but now they were wondering, where has God ever loved us? Why is it worth serving God? And so he points out the great difference. And every one of us, need to remember the difference that he has made in our lives, in the lives of maybe our parents, in the lives maybe of our grandparents, where God made a difference in bringing us to this point that we are here today. It is by God's grace. For all those of you that know your own weakness and the frailties of your flesh and your sin nature and your depravity, You know that it's God's grace that has made a choice before the world began, sending Christ to die for you 2,000 years ago in the fullness of time, regenerating you with the power of the Holy Spirit, and sending ministers to preach the gospel to get your attention at some point in your life to where you want to obey Him. And we owe Him in return for that. The Lord has been so good. And we can look at the borders and see the difference. And the borders get very close and personal sometimes, in some of your families the difference that God has made between you and your siblings. Right. He's left your parents, but He saved you. He left your siblings, but He saved you. You owe Him. We all owe Him. Right. You know, if I can't see it in my siblings because my brother and my sister are fully converted and serving the Lord with zeal, then all I have to do is look another generation back and look to my parents. And look at their siblings. And so we see the border of Israel. We see God's favor toward us. God hated Esau as a nation, the nation of Edom. He's referring to the two boys here. And this is a national condemnation of them. This is not the use of these words for personal election. Personal election is taught in Romans chapter 9, and verse 13, where these words are quoted by the Apostle Paul and given a different application than they are right here. Though the fact is true, God loved Jacob. God hated Esau. But here he's referring to the national descendants of those two men and the effect that God had on their two nations. He blessed one, he despised the other. You know, Edom had ideas that they were going to come back like the Jews and rebuild their nation, and God said, well, they're going to try, but I'm going to tear it down because I have indignation against them forever. While I have love for you, I had love in chastening you while you were in Babylon, and I have great love for you in bringing you back and reestablishing you in your home country. And so we have verse 4 that describes their efforts in Edom, meaning the Edomites, meaning the descendants of Esau, those words all being synonyms for one another, that God would throw them down, and the people against whom God has indignation forever. And he says this, Your eyes shall see, and ye shall say, The Lord will be magnified from the border of Israel. Look at the difference God has made between the border of wickedness verse 4, and the border of Israel, verse 5. When saints see the differences that God makes, it should provoke fervent worship. Lord, help us to see that. We want to taste and see that the Lord is good. And sometimes that isn't tasting things that we buy at the grocery store. It's stopping and reflecting on the difference that God made in our life versus other lives we know all around us, connected to us by DNA. Connected to us in families. Connected to us in neighborhoods. The difference that God has made. Praise His name for that difference. How do we apply this to ourselves? We want to admire the borders around us. We want to be very thankful for the abundance of all things that God has given us. We want the love of Christ to constrain us. We want to make a judgment that's very logical and reasonable and rational. That if Christ died for all, then all were dead. And they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto him that loved them and gave himself for them. And it should move us. The Lord is appealing to us today. He loved us more than he loved these people in this description. He sent his son to die for us. We owe him greater service, greater love in return than he could appeal to them for. Because we are the recipients of greater blessings. Help us to believe that, O Lord, because it is so true. We always want to remember the five phases of salvation. The Lord has loved us with an everlasting love. And that everlasting love came forth in the fullness of time in Christ Jesus on the cross of Calvary. It came forth with the power of the Holy Ghost regenerating us. It brought us gospel preachers. I know, it's the third time I'm saying it. And the second time with the same amount of detail. God sent us preachers to hear the gospel and to believe it. And He's got eternal heaven waiting for us, and we should rejoice in those things. Paul prayed that the Ephesian saints might come to an understanding of all the dimensions of the love of God. Lesson number two, verse six. A son honoreth his father, and a servant his master. If then I be a father... Where is mine honor? And if I be a master, where is my fear? Sayeth the Lord of hosts unto you, O priests that despise my name. And ye say, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, Wherein have we polluted thee? In that ye say, The temple of the Lord is contemptible. And if he offer the blind for sacrifice, is it not evil? And if he offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it now unto thy governor. Will he be pleased with thee, or accept thy person? Saith the Lord of hosts. I'm going to stop right there and explain these verses, and we'll go on. Proper preaching is reading in the book and the law of God distinctly, and giving the sense and causing the people to understand the reading. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8. And so I've read to you distinctly three verses here where now the Lord brings his judgment to bear, the burden of the word of the Lord by Malachi to Israel upon the priests. And he accuses them of not giving him the fear and the honor that he deserves. It is a rule of nature and a law of the conscience of man that children honor their parents. It's amazing that we live in such a corrupt, perverse generation that children do not honor their parents as they should And once did, and still do, in other nations that this nation thinks are backward. A son honoreth his father and a servant his master. It is ordinary and proper for children to honor parents. It is ordinary, proper, and natural that servants obey their masters. And yet God was the father of Israel and God was the master of Israel. But where was his honor and his fear and service? So he asked them you know this is argument number can you see this argument developing the first one was i've loved you don't you recognize that the second one is i'm your father and your master and you naturally and ordinarily honor parents and employers where's my honor and then he applies it to the priests it's the priests that are guilty and brethren it is the priests that are guilty today it is the preachers that are guilty today it is the pulpit that leads in the perilous times of the last days because there is a famine for the word of God right. because men don't preach the word of God anymore. That's right. They want to entertain with fables and entertainment. The praise band is more important than the preaching of God's word and storytelling, anecdotes, illustrations, jesting, foolishness, and practical applications of a pitiful, effeminate religion is what fills most pulpits. Right. And they need the word of God. And so it's priests, and so the Lord goes right after the party that's responsible for the decline of a nation, and it's the ministry. And it's going to be the ministry again in the first half of, of chapter 2. But he says to them, Where is my fear and my honor, O priests, that despise my name? And they say, well, Wherein have we despised thy name? Ye offer polluted bread. You say, well, what's polluted bread? Bread here is a synecdoche for the other sacrifices, and you can tell that by reading verse 8. Because it's not bread that they're offering that's moldy, although that may have been part of it. It's their animal sacrifices they were bringing that were less than the best. Verse 8 says, He offer the blind. Bread is not blind or seeing. Animals are blind or seeing. Is it not evil if he offer the lame? Bread isn't lame or well. Bread doesn't run around and jump for joy. And sick. Bread doesn't get sick, but animals do. And so what the Lord is appealing to, and this is going to be mentioned throughout the chapter, you're bringing the weak, the beggarly, the lame, the blind, and all kind of pitiful animals that you really don't mind losing so much out of your flock because they're not the best. When the Lord wants the best, He wants something that is without blemish and without spot. The fat of the flock. He wants the best you have to give Him, and He deserves the best you have to give Him. He deserves the greatest zeal of your life. He deserves the preparation before you even get to church. If you were going to meet your governor, you'd prepare. I want to tell you if any one of you in here had an appointment to see the governor of your state. There's a couple states involved here today. You would prepare for it. You would put it on the tele, you would put it on the refrigerator to make a note that you are going to meet with the governor. You would make sure that you were dressed properly, that you had slept properly, that you learned everything you could about that governor. You would be prepared to answer every question. Your heart would be ready. It would be full of zeal. You would want to be there on your best performance with your best behavior, early, aggressive, zealous, respectful, punctual, full of praise, thanksgiving for every good thing that governor has done, because you would have checked his record for the last year or two to find out what he's done for your state. You would have gone to all those steps and more if you were going to have a private meeting with a governor. But we're not here meeting some governor. Right. And I speak respectfully, but compared to the Most High God, they are nothing. Right. Amen. They are public servants. And they're His servants. And yes, They carry the sword, and it's not in vain. Thanks be to God for the state of Texas. Wherein have we despised thy name? You offer polluted bread upon mine altar. And ye say, wherein have we polluted thee? In that, ye say, the table of the Lord is contemptible. The altar of God, the table of showbread, the brazen altar, it's all contemptible. God's worship stinks. It doesn't matter. We don't need to care about it. Who cares about the worship of God? Who cares about the sacrifices we bring? It doesn't matter if they're good or not. The table of the Lord is contemptible. Would they actually say those words? Well, they might have, but they didn't. That's why I want you to understand this chapter and the seventh verse. It says, in that ye say. Well, how do they say the words? The table of the Lord is contemptible. By offering polluted bread. What is polluted bread? It's blind animals out of their flock. It's lame and sick animals out of their flock. And by bringing lame and sick, you're saying the Lord is contemptible. Okay. If we don't prepare for this assembly, if we don't pray for this assembly, if we don't look forward to this assembly, if we don't love God during the week, if we don't come in here with zeal, if we don't love our brethren that are in here, if we don't sing with all our hearts, if we don't look at the Word of God and and be praying and begging the Lord, feed me from these words, teach me from these words, then you believe that the worship of God is contemptible and you might as well say it. Why don't you bring a sign in next time and hold up a placard? in this assembly, and say the worship of God is contemptible. Because in in God's sight, it's the same thing. He isn't angry with you. Except those of you who think that the worship of God is contemptible because you don't put anything into it. You actually put energy into your stupid job that you're going to go to tomorrow, and every single one of you, your jobs are stupid. They're infantile, and any other idiot with a room temperature IQ could do your job. Give somebody three months and they'll train them. If it was an intelligent trainer, they could do it in three weeks. You say, my job's more important than that. That's why I'm preaching. For your benefit, because you have a severe spiritual problem. Right. This ought to be the most important thing you do in your life. Amen. You know, you want to get up and get dressed just right and do this and do that and prepare for a job. And Oh, are you kidding me? Really? Really? Why? Why? You're making a couple bucks above minimum wage. This is the house of the Lord. He deserves our best. And if we don't give him our best, then we might as well have a sign, and we might as well get up and give a testimony. The worship of the Lord in the New Testament's contemptible. This ain't worth it. This is a weariness to me. I'm bored and tired of this and snuff at it. <laughs> this is worthless. And so the Lord says in verse 7, In that ye say, in their offering of polluted bread, meaning right. as a synecdoche. Synecdoche is when you just mention one part of a, a larger thing, like when we say all hands on deck. You know, we, we want more than the hands of sailors to arrive on deck. We want the whole sailor to get there, all six foot of them. But we refer to all hands. Oh, well, I hope you understand what a synecdoche is. And so here it is, ye offer polluted bread but he's referring to more than just bread. He's referring to the sacrif- whole sacrificial system, that they were bringing what was cheap, what was easy, what wasn't going to cost them very much. And that is the dangerous part. We want to bring something that's costly. Yeah, right. If our worship doesn't cost us anything, God knows that. Did any of you recently read my answer to the man who wrote in and asked, why do you say that the average American, when he gives 10%, is only giving 7%? Remember? Right. Did some of you read that? Yeah. Well, that was me trying to help out this particular person to understand how that he can measure things the way God measures things because if it doesn't cost us 10%, then is it a tithe? You say, but the church got a tithe. If it didn't cost you 10%, is it a tithe? Nope. And so you want to be thinking at all times, am I bringing something that is the best? You say, you know, when I hear you get on this subject, it just makes me uncomfortable and nervous. You sound like a Pharisee. I just got to see you, does God sound like a Pharisee here to you? That he doesn't want a blind animal. Does a blind ab- animal have the same quantity of blood as a seeing animal? Same weight? Well, isn't that what God wants? Blood and guts on an altar? What is he, why, why can't it be blind? Because God knows when you go out and look at your flock, you see that little scraggly thing over there that's sick. You see this blind one over here that's butting into the electric fence not very many times and so you bring it he wants you to be looking through that fly- oh, oh Charles you know you've already named it because you love it so much Charles oh, I'm sorry buddy today's a bad day for you and a good day for the Lord come here and so Charles, his favorite in the flock, he takes to the Lord. Do you understand? Amen. Right. It's amusing and it's wonderful. Do you know how it's wonderful? To give the Lord your best. Right. For all those of you in the prime of life, you better be giving the Lord your best. Right. See, that's part of your sacrifice. Right. beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Your bodies in 30 years from now aren't going to be the same. You're not going to have the same level of energy. Your mind's not going to have the same memory. Your lips are not going to have the same eloquence. In order to be able to sing his praise and speak of him in the prime of life, you want to give him your best. Right. Burn yourself out for him in the, in the proportion that God has asked of each of us. I hope you understand verses 6 through 8. I am going to finish this chapter, and I'm going to finish it on time. Can you do this to your governor? If you were to give him less than your best, will he be pleased with thee or accept thy person? Will he be excited if you come in late to a meeting with the governor, not dressed well, not prepared well? He asks you three questions, two of them you are totally incompetent to answer, and the third one he gets an um, um-um answer that's ridiculous. And you had a meeting with the governor. And he warns you about it a month in advance. So you've been warned your whole life it's time to go to church on the Lord's Day and to worship him. Will your governor be pleased? Not a chance. When there used to be real authority, he just cut your head off. And you say, well, that would be against the Bill of Rights. There wasn't due process. See, when there's real authority, there isn't due process. They just cut your head off because the due process has already occurred. Right there, where it belongs, in their minds, not by a jury of peers. It's never due process when it's a jury of peers. It has other words for it, but that's a subject for another time. It's the governor. Will he be pleased with thee? No. Will he accept thy person because you come unprepared? Because you don't give him your best? No. Verses 9 through 11. This is a little hiatus because he's going to take up again with the table of the Lord in verse 12. Can you see the table of the Lord down there in verse 12? So we got a little hiatus right here. We have a little irony to start out with. And here's the prophet Malachi. And now I pray you, talking to the priests, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. This hath been by your means. Will he regard your persons? Sayeth the Lord of hosts. This is a mockery. Malachi is mocking them. Go ahead and pray. Beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. He doesn't really mean it. He means you have no basis for which you should be praying, and your prayer for graciousness isn't going to result in any blessing on us, because this has been by your means. You're the one that has caused this neglectful attitude toward the worship of God in this nation. Will he regard your persons? Is there something special about you because you're a priest that you can bring polluted sacrifices, the lame and the blind, and put on his altars, and he's going to receive you and hear your praying because you're special, because your person is something special? You've got a good last name? You've got a good first name? It's your office of priest? Sayeth the Lord of hosts? No, it's not going to work. Do you understand that verse? He's mocking them. And now I pray you, beseech God that he will be gracious unto us. I get so tired, especially back in 2001 when we had our 9-11 event in this country of our leaders wanting to sing God bless America on the steps of the Capitol building. This hath been by your means. The reason these things have happened in our country have been the neglect of our leaders to properly support gospel preaching and Bible preaching in our country. They've taken the Bible out of the schools. They've taken prayer out of the schools. They've legitimatized anything that comes out of Hollywood. In fact, it is to be promoted. And on and on it goes. This has been by your means. This is the the priest of God. This neglect of worship is by your means. You've caused this. Is he going to regard your persons? What is there that thinks your prayers are going to be heard? Nothing. He's mocking them. It's irony. It's a figure of speech. It's in the Bible in a multitude of places. Who is there? This is what they're acting like. Who is there, even among you, that would shut the doors for naught? He's referring to the priests. Who is there among all you priests that would even shut the doors of the temple for nothing? If you're not getting a fee for it, How many of you will even shut the doors to the temple? Neither do ye kindle fire on my altar for nothing. You're fat and happy with your big wages, and that's the only reason you do it. I have no pleasure in you, saith the Lord of hosts. Neither will I accept an offering at your hand. Now do you understand the fact that he's not going to hear their prayers? From verse 9, I have no pleasure in you at all. Your persons don't mean a thing to me. I can tell that you're just doing it because you are part of the non-profit profession of the ministry. You know, when I was in banking, we referred to pastors and priests and others as the non-profit profession because they didn't have to work for their living. They didn't have to compete for their living. All you had to do was pick up a college handbook, decide that you wanted a degree in some form of ministry at some college, and go ahead and get yourself a church and become some sort of a little administrator and just go through the liturgical book. Do you know that everything is already settled for pastors in all the mainline denominations? Oh yeah. Do you know that there's a, book, there's a liturgical book that tells them what scriptures that will be read every Sunday? What sermons are to be preached? What songs are to be sung? Do you know that? They just get up there like puppets. And they get paid for it, just like the Catholics. And that liturgical order of services is is scheduled around all the pagan Roman Catholic holidays. You know, Lent just takes up a big chunk of time because everything is already settled on what you're going to do. Did you see the person that wrote in recently asking about the day of Epiphany? You know, I had to go look that one up. I didn't know what Epiphany was. (laughs) Except... Antiochus Epiphany, and that's what what our big question was, is Antiochus Epiphany related to the day... No. I didn't know it anyway. I don't want to know, but I had to know. So I had to go look it up. Do you understand that, how men get into the ministry? I'm thankful for men like Moses, Jeremiah, and Paul, who didn't want the ministry and God had to force them into it. He basically beat them into it. I didn't want the ministry. I had a you understand what I mean when I say I had a better job? But do you also understand that I have the best job? Okay. I hope we understand that. Four. Verse 11 is wonderful. Okay, priest. This has been by your means. I have no pleasure in you. I don't have any pleasure in your persons. It is unacceptable the way that you're worshiping me. For from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great among the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name and a pure offering. For my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. And here comes a prophecy of the New Testament of Gentiles being converted and giving God the worship and the praise and the service and the zeal that He had not got from the nation of Israel. And that is what we want to do today. That is what we want to do every day God gives us. We want to outshine our brethren of the Old Testament, not to make them look bad, not to make us look good, but to glorify God for His goodness. Because He's been good to us Gentiles. We were not part of that olive tree of Israel. We were not part of that vineyard that was on a fruitful hill, and God's taken that vineyard away from them and given it unto us, and in Acts chapter thirteen, when the apostle Paul told the church when Paul told the city of Antioch of Pisidia that God had done that, had taken it away from the Jews and given it to the Gentiles, and they glorified the word of the Lord, and the Gentiles rejoiced, and the whole city came out to hear Paul. Acts chapter thirteen, verses forty five through forty eight. This is a wonderful prophecy from the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same. And that's the whole earth, the whole earth, instead of that little spot of ground called Israel is going to worship God and his name is going to be great. And is his name great among us today? Do we know, do we love the, the name, the Lord Jehovah? Did we have it mentioned again from Psalm 80 by our young brother that presented it to us? We love the name Jehovah. Are we content with the name God? Do we recognize that it's not a name? Yes. Do we love Jehovah's son? Do we understand that Jesus means Jehovah is the savior? Oh, yes. We love his name. And for, you know, worldwide, his name is going to be great. And in every place, incense shall be offered into my name. How do we offer incense in the new Testament to the name of God? By our prayers. They come up into the presence of God as incense. You can read about it in the book of Revelation. And my name shall be great among the heathen, saith the Lord of hosts. And we are the heathen. Are you proud to be heathen this morning? Amen. Are you offended if I call you heathen? Oh, thank you, Lord, for saving us heathen. Because we are heathen. Right. Right. But he saved us. We're his children. We have his vineyard. He's dug, he's digged about it. He's hedged it in. He's dunged it. He's sent rain upon it. He's prospered us. Thank you, Lord. Let's never bring Him less than our best. Right. Or we miss Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1 is He deserves our best because He's loved us and distinguished His love to us from others. Do you know that the value of love is dependent upon how discriminating it is? Right. The fewer objects there are of love, the greater value the love is toward any one of those objects. The greater the price paid in the name of love, proves the value of love. You know, if God loves everyone, and most everyone ends up in hell, God's love is not very meaningful. Let let me speak plainly now. It's the love of a whore. You say, that's not nice to say something like that about the love of God. I would never say that about the love of God. I'm just talking about the love that free will Baptists and others have about the love of God. Right. The value of love is how exclusive it is and how powerful it is and how effective it is and what was given in the name of that love and what that love accomplishes. That is what gives value to love. And the love that God has toward His elect is incredible. It's before the world began. It gave His Son. It's only for His elect and everyone that God loved will be in heaven without the loss of one. That is wonderful love. And so we learn that we should be giving Him love back because He's loved us. Amen. And we love Him because He first loved us. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the Savior of our for our sins. Right. Thank you, Lord. This We're the heathen of verse 11. Look at verse 12. But ye have profaned it. Back to that name of the Lord. But ye have profaned it. In that, ye say, the table of the Lord is polluted. See, there's words again that are coming from their actions. The actions are going to be given shortly. But their, their actions say these words. The table of the Lord is polluted. And the fruit thereof, even as meat, is contemptible. See, it's right back to verse 6 and 7. Ye also said, by your actions, you also said these things to me. Behold, what a weariness is it! Exclamation point. And ye have snuffed at it, saith the Lord of hosts. That's an exaggerated breathing noise made through your nose where you're just tossing your head and snuffing at it. This is just tiring and boring, and it's a weariness to me. I'm just sick and tired of this. And ye brought that which was torn, and the lame, and the sick. Thus ye brought an offering. Should I accept this of your hand, saith the Lord? Should I accept that kind of an offering? This kind of an offering is saying to me that this is a weariness, that you're just bored with worshiping me, that you're just snuffing at it, and that you're saying that it is contemptible and that the table of the Lord is polluted, those kind of offerings. We want to bring them our best. That's right. Do you have a Charles that you can give the Lord? And I don't mean Charles Doring. <laughs> Charles can give himself. Sorry, Charlie. What can you give the Lord? Cursed be the deceiver. When are we a deceiver? When we come into this house and pretend by getting dressed up and being here on time and sitting in a pew that we're the worshipers of God. When are we a deceiver? When we get baptized by immersion, by our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we hear us being charged that we are going to rise out of these waters to live in newness of life. Then we don't do it. We're a deceiver. Right. We come in here and we're, we pretend we're the people of God, but we love pleasures more than we love God. Is that true of anyone in here? That you love pleasures more than you love God. If there is going through your mind at all, I can't wait for this sermon to get over, then we can have lunch break, then we have to go through another service, then I can go home and have my life. You're dead meat. 2 right. Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5 talk about those that are lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, and we live in a nation of Christians like that. It says they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. The authority, that is, that makes a claim on our lives that we bring him our best. Do you remember all the onesies I told you about at a men's meeting about a year ago? If the Lord's worth such and such, then he's worth such and such plus one. Always giving him a little bit more. Do you remember? I don't even want to say what I'm referring to. It refers to every part of your life. If the Lord is worthy of this, then he's worthy of this and a little bit more. And then you know what I'm going to do next. If he's worthy of this, then he's worthy of that, and a little bit more. You say, but you might get me up to twelve percent. Oh, <laughs> at least R.G. Laterno got up to ninety. Remember? And I'm just using that as an example. Just I'm just because that, that's not my that's not the point here. Trust me, it will be in chapter three. Uh, it's not the point here. Are you giving him your best? Did you prepare? Did you pray? Are you reading? Are you praying through the week? Are you loving others? Are you encouraging others, exhorting others, warning others, rebuking others? Do you delight in the Lord? Do you love to hear his praise? Does it, does it light up your life? Or are you so excited about your job and you're so excited about your family and you're so excited about your children and sending them off to school, you know, or having them home at school and sitting around the table with your children? All of that is inferior to the love of God better you didn't have children and better you weren't married if you were going to let those things replace your love for the Lord. We want to give Him our best. And that's why every choice should be made that we make. Is this going to hinder me giving my best to the Lord or not? Cursed be the deceiver which hath in his flock a male and voweth and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. Lord, if you'll bless my farm this year, And provide for my family. I'll bring you my best sheep. The Lord blesses his farm. He provides for his family. He goes out to the flock. Oh, this barren you. That's E-W-E. I wasn't calling anyone barren. This barren you, I'm going to take it to the Lord. Which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. He brings something less than he, he, he vowed. We have all said on numerous occasions that we are on the Lord's side and we will serve the Lord. We have said on numerous occasions we will give him our best. We have told him on numerous occasions he is our all and all. We've heard already this morning that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Are we actually living that out? Are we giving our bodies a living sacrifice to him? Does he have your all? And you bring less unto the Lord than you are a deceiver and you are cursed. These are the words of God. They are weighty and I love Malachi 1.14 and I hope that you love it and I hope that you love it in a very sober and reverent way that this is God bringing pressure to bear from his first two arguments very powerfully. Cursed! Be the deceiver! Instead of all my little illustrations about how when you do this, you're saying this You know, when you bring less than your best, you're saying that the worship of God is contemptible. I'm putting aside all those things. Here's the bottom line. Cursed be the deceiver, the person that says something with their lips toward me, but doesn't bring it forth in giving all that they can toward me. Cursed be the deceiver, which hath in his flock a male, and voweth, he makes a vow to God, to give that male, and sacrificeth unto the Lord a corrupt thing. We have all committed to give Him our best. We have sung repeatedly, I am Thine, O Lord. We have sung repeatedly, Take my life and let it be. A sacrifice unto Thee, O Lord. We talk about our hands. We talk about our feet. We talk about our lips. We talk about our intellect. We talk about our gold and our silver. We talk about everything is the Lord's. And then we don't give him everything we have and we vow unto the Lord and we sacrifice a corrupt thing, cursed is that person. Look at you know look at your life. The seed of the godly shall be blessed. Your whole downline is going to be blessed if you'll give the Lord your best. For I am a great king. Is that arrogant for him to say that? that's an understatement for I am a great king saith the Lord of hosts and my name is dreadful among the heathen and you know what he's referring to us because he's charging the Jews as being the cursed deceivers he knows that we would give him better and we have but can we give him better we we can may the Lord bless us to do that Malachi chapter 1. Amen.